Today's episode's a first for us in that we are going to issue a trigger warning. We will be having conversations that reference abuse, that reference addiction. And so we would like you to proceed with caution in listening to the episode. It's a really important one to listen to, though. It's a continuation of the one that we had at the Denver Women's March. We are going to interview a Native American woman who was abused by a white man. There are stories of meth addiction, alcohol addiction, abused partners and children in the conversation. And it really follows the spirit of let's listen to a narrative that is not necessarily the one that we have lived. So in the conversation you're going to hear, there's a few arcs. The first arc is about the impact of how we are parented and how we then parent. The second arc talks more specifically about the children's abusive father and the justice system. The third arc touches on the impact of abuse and how children might wind up in prison and the value of children. And the fourth arc, it's a short one, but so important. It's talking about how part of healing requires not judging. So with that, we bring to you specifics of a conversation and we will dive into it right here. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're really excited to bring to you a special conversation. If you listen to the episode on the Women's March, you know who our guest is. We get to have a much more in-depth conversation with Molly, who I will let introduce herself in just a moment. But suffice it to say, we are really grateful that you're here to share your story, to help teach us and anyone who wants to listen more about your experience and how that might apply more broadly as well. So thanks, Molly. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name, I have a lot of names. My name on social media is my legal name, which is Mary Ryan. My everyday name that I go by is Molly Ryan Kills Enemy. The Ryan is my adopted name and the Kills Enemy is my Lakota last name. And then I have my Lakota name, which is Chante Okichi Uyewi, which means do work from their heart woman. So I have a lot of names. A lot of people know me by different, <laughs> depending on where they met me and how I introduced myself. I have a lot of different names that I go by. So I'm a survivor of domestic violence, sexual assault, and sexual abuse. I mean, we're going to unpack it all as much as we can in 45 minutes to an hour. Yes. <laughs> can we start with what you just mentioned? You know, your adoptive family, you were raised, we found out in the conversation at the Women's March, you were raised by a white family. Yes, I was. One of my elders pointed out, it was quite a while ago that I was blessed because I lived in both worlds. I was able to understand the non-native version as well as embracing my culture and probably over the last decade through my healing journey, that I'm able to look at both sides and not just the indigenous side, but I understand, you know, the family that I was raised and how I was raised and understanding that we don't always, you know, we have this perception of white people. And I've come to understand that, you know, my parents did the best that they knew what they knew. 
And so it wasn't necessarily that they were horrible people, which is a lot of perceptions that we are taught that white people are bad people. I think that they're doing what they were taught and that was passed down. And so I can look at that and understand my family and understand that no one intentionally tried to harm me. They just did what they could. When did you realize, and because you were raised in a white family, and did you connect with your Native culture and background? Or I felt like you were saying that was part of your adult journey, and that was your healing journey. So when you were growing up, were you immersed in a white community? Yes. Okay. I was raised Catholic, and I went to parochial school my entire life. And so it was when I walked away from the domestic violence is when I really began looking at the traumas that I had inside and the thoughts that I had my entire life. And that was rejection and not feeling accepted and not feeling like I was loved because my birth mother gave me away. And so I really had to work through those feelings and understand that, how do I put it? I am who I am and things happen in people's lives. And my birth mother did what she knew was best for me at that point in her life. And so, you know, a lot of people are coming at me and say, how come you don't know why you were given up? And sometimes we will never know those answers. We won't know why. But I accept and I understand that she did what was best for me as well as for her. And that's all, you know, I can't expect anything more from her at that point because I understand, you know, a lot of us carry trauma and it's not addressed. So I'm not one to push people's feelings or to push answers from them, like try to force the answers out of them. I don't like to do that. Tell us a little bit about how that plays into your relationship with your kids, because you have your like group of kids. It's amazing, right? And so how does that play into it? Because I feel like we as mothers, you know, we will make our own mistakes no matter what. We try not to repeat the mistakes of our parents. Right. And yet I find myself turning into my mother more and more every day. So how does that play for you, you know, in terms of your relationship with your kids? Because what you said about belonging and feeling rejected, I mean, that's really powerful. So there's a story. It was right after the days of having the months just following the kid's dad being removed from the house and being alone and making that decision. There were things that I needed to address, but I didn't know what they were. And I woke up one morning and my heart was really heavy. And, you know, a lot of us aren't taught about having choices. A lot of us are taught that this is how it is. You have to live your life this way. You have to do things this way. You have to, we're not given choices or opportunities. And so my belief, my thinking, my ways were that I didn't like the way I was raised. I didn't like being raised Catholic because that wasn't my way. That wasn't born into my DNA. That wasn't passed down. And so I woke up thinking my kids don't have a chance. They don't have a chance being raised by someone like me. And so I started looking for someone to take my kids so that they could raise them better than I was capable of. 
And so I started, it was a couple of weeks that I felt this. And this one day I took the day off from work. I took them out of school and we went for a drive and I cried the whole time thinking I'm going to have to give these kids up because I don't have, I'm not able and I'm not capable of giving them the life that they deserve. And so it was in those moments, it was in that day that I realized that I did have a choice. It was probably my ancestors telling me, you do have a choice. And so coming home that evening, I decided I was stripping away all of those, the behaviors and the teachings and the Catholicism that was ingrained into my brain. I started stripping those away and creating my own method of parenting my kids. And I'm not perfect. And, you know, because we have, there's trauma, deep, deep trauma in our family. I don't handle things, you know, I'll see something happening and I panic and I react. And with them both being teenagers at this point, I'm learning to not react. I'm learning to let go of those ways of my adopted mother of having an immediate reaction that's negative and then coming down on them where I'm able to stop myself and be like, okay, there's something going on. I don't know what's going on. So let me ask some questions. And so that's how we process through things. And they're beginning to feel more comfortable with me where they do. They're honest with me and they're, they'll sit down. My son, who's, you know, he's going to be 15 this year. He's coming to me and saying, okay, this is what's going on. And this is what I feel like I need rather than, you know, I've taught my kids to think about their actions. Like if they do something bad in school, I've always taught them like what was going on in your head? What was the process? And this one day it stays in my head because I went to go pick my son up. He had gotten in trouble and he is sitting in the back seat and we're driving away. And he said, so because you are my mother and because you are who you are and what you believe is like, I had all afternoon <laughs> to process and to think about my actions. And then he told them <laughs> to me and I was like, what? And, but that's what I've taught them is to think about your actions. Like, does it, I always want to know, did I have a part in this? Because I want to correct my behaviors so that I don't repeat it. So we always try to, you know, I always try to make them feel comfortable that they can talk to me about the stuff and to know that I'm not going to react, to know that there's not going to be retaliation or I'm not going to bring it up, you know, at bad times and remind them. So, you know, that I try to be a much different parent than how I was parented. That's really cool. I mean, let's talk about some of the stuff you referred to about your relationship with your children's father, right? First of all, he is a white man, correct? He is white. I want people to understand that he is a known meth user. He does have charges for cooking meth, because I feel that that's an important piece, knowing that this is a known criminal. 
he's known and to also have a lengthy history of domestic violence and how it affected the judicial system and the way that they have continually allowed him to walk away. Like from a people perspective, can you talk a little about what happened when you knew you had to leave the relationship? What started is he was really abusing my oldest son and it got to the point where I started waking up and thinking and telling myself, he can't do this to my kids. He can't do this. And what prompted his eviction from our home was that he drank a whole bottle of bourbon or whiskey one night. I mean, like he just stood in the kitchen and I watched him down the whole bottle and he decided it was time for everyone to go to bed. And my son wasn't ready And he went into their bedroom and I was in our bedroom and I didn't know what was going on. But from what my son told me is that he choked him out. The dad choked my son out. And the next day, our abuser thought that I had seen what was going on. So he came and he was remorseful and he told me he was really sorry. And it was my son. We had left to go run some errands and he said, Mom, he choked me out last night, and I immediately called probation officers. He, My son was on probation, juvenile probation at that time. I called them. We had a family therapist, and they were luck to contact CPS because they knew we had a history with CPS, and they called the next day, and this moment and time was the hugest for us because I was told you either file a restraining order against him or we remove the kids. And I turned around and I ran all the way to the courthouse and had all the kids with me. And they all said, yes, he has abused us and testified and said, you know, we need to feel safe. And from then it was Rocky. It was me about every domestic violence situation for about four months afterwards. I went back and forth. He was never in the home that people knew of. He came around twice, but there was a moment where I knew that something was not going, the things were not okay when I sent my two youngest over there. And I called CPS and I said, something's not right something is going on. They sent the Rocky Mountain Law Clinic, one of their investigators to the home. She cleared everyone because she said that my kids were happy. My kids were, you know, they were great. They were happy. They were very well behaved, but they were in my home. They weren't in the presence of someone who was abusing them while I was not in present. And so they quickly closed, opened and shut the case just simply because they had observed two children in a safe place. And I kept telling people there's something wrong. They're crying before I dropped them off. They don't want to go. The one moment when I realized that I had to do something was when my son was, he was balled up. He's a really little guy. He's tall and skinny now, but he was real little at the time. And he had, he was in a little ball in his bedroom and my daughter or my older one had walked in and said, let's go. And he said, I don't want to go. 
And she argued with him for a minute. And then he finally told her, my dad hurts me when I go over to his house. And so I was able to keep my daughter from being, I used the excuse that she was having low sugars for my son. I wasn't able to be as sneaky with him and the dad insisted he would show up if I didn't bring him. And so it was that spring when it came out that he was really abusing both the kids. And I was supposed to go get them from a visit of his and he had harassed me all weekend long about going and staying with him. And I called his department, I said, and requested that they come with me. And I was grateful that they did, but he had the kids lying and they created this vicious lie about my oldest son. And so when we got there, because I had all of my paperwork, the kids were had to go with me because I had temporary restraining order. I had custody papers. I had all of them with me in my car and the kids went home with me that night. We were driving home and the kids admitted that their dad had forced them to lie about what was going on. And so we got home and we decided we'd go to our friend's house and just relax. And I got phone calls from my daughter and from the Denver Police Department telling me I needed to come find my son. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. So we packed up and we went back to Denver and their dad had called Denver County and reported that my two youngest lives were in danger because my son had been molesting my daughter. And we, the kids, when the police came and interviewed everyone on the spot, the kids admitted that their dad had forced them to lie and that the lie was that what had been reported was not true. It was false. My son came home and they made me remove my son. And we didn't see him for two years. He was placed in my parents' care and he had been cleared of all the allegations. It was a process, but he had been cleared. But at that point, he had already started his spiral and addiction. And so the courts, they didn't address the trauma that had happened. He had admitted that he was being abused by the same man. There were so many truths that had come out, so many admissions that what this man was doing had come out from the kids as well as my son. And not once did Denver County or the courts address the trauma that had happened. Nothing was addressed with the kids. We were sent to therapy for the duration of the case when it was opened. So I... We weren't, no one in our family was given the opportunity to understand what had happened. There are moments to this day where the kids will tell me things that happened. And at this point, I'm learning to not even react and just tell them, you know, that's something that we'll have to talk about or that's something, you know, We're trying to find them a therapist, but to have the courts not address these issues, the traumas that happen, the abuse, which is huge because I've had to deal with my own 
And to know that I have an entire family who is affected by the abuse is really hard because 10 years later, I'm still picking up the pieces and going through that whole process and not having the courts hold this man accountable for anything that he did to my family. That is my trauma. That, you know, when I read and I hear of injustices, mainly in Native families, that's where I get triggered. That's where I, you know, that fire reignites and and. I either speak up or I have to work through those triggers because, you know, this is how the majority of Native people, Native families have to live. We're often ignored and, you know, there's colonial violence that's been happening for over 500 years towards the Indigenous people. And when they close the case, finally, after trying to get the dad to follow his parenting plan, For two years, they kept that open. And two years of me standing by and saying, why are you not holding him accountable? Why are we keeping this case open? And when he visits the kids, he doesn't know how to care for them. He doesn't know how to care for Tika's diabetes. He took off with her diabetes kit one night. And I felt that it was intentional. The people who were doing the supervised therapeutic visits tried to turn it and make it that it was my fault. And the next day, it turned out that somehow the supervisor had Tika's diabetes kit in her car. And no one apologized to me for blaming me. No one took responsibility for that. It is still my fault. Somehow it was my fault that, you know... Her diabetes kit ended up in the supervisor's vehicle. So it's been very difficult. When they closed the case, the therapists and the attorneys told me, well, the one good thing is that you have your kids. But 10 years later, I am still dealing with the trauma. I am still working through it. And having one of them completely block what happened, that's hard. It's hard for me to stand by And to hope and to pray that one day they don't start acting out. They don't turn to the drugs and the violence that my oldest son did because no one paid attention to him. They wanted to fix the addiction, but you can't fix addiction if you don't or if you are not willing to look at the root cause. When you talk and I hear you talk about the courts and sort of the systemic failure of various groups that were supposed to advocate for you or supposed to help you, that's what is so difficult, I think, and such a barrier for people that people have in understanding why when you see our court system or our judicial system and how it's supposed to work and the reality of how it does work and how those two are very disparate, especially in a lot of family law cases where you have children involved and trauma and so many different components. And I know what I wanted to ask and to follow up is during the Women's March, you mentioned Mm -hmm. that you felt that you had your attorney was your advocate or your attorney listened to you along the way, or at least one of them, hopefully. But I would love to hear in the process within all those failures along the way. So when they opened the case to investigate the dad, 
they tried to remove the kids because they were saying that I would go straight back to him. And it was that standing in the courtrooms or the court hallways that realized I have been in an abusive relationship my entire life. No matter who it was, it was always abusive in some form. And so I said, no, I'm not going to go back to him because I need to learn how to stay out of these relationships. Every single relationship in my adult life has been abusive. And I want to end those cycles so that I don't find myself with a man who's abusing my children. And so they, it was my attorney who went in and she fought and I didn't lose the kids that day. It was a couple of months later when there was physical proof, not physical, but one of the kids was drawing pictures of what the abuse that had happened. The thing about that incident was, I was, I remember it because I just about died when I saw the photo, the picture that had been drawn. We were both sitting on my bed and I was doing laundry. I was folding laundry and they asked me about some clothing that they had. And they wanted details. And I finally said, what are you doing? And they said, well, I did this. This is what daddy was doing. And I turn around and I just lost it. And I asked what had been happening. And they told me. And I immediately called therapists and said, this is what happened. And, and to have, there's a caseworker on the case who had been assigned to the case was telling people that I was vindictive. I was vindictive of our abuser and everything that he had done and to not believe me. And so it was in October that they were becoming concerned about my mental health. And I was too. Um, There were a lot of things that happened in our, we had moved into a new home, leaving and making sure that I would turn off every light in the house and driving back home and pulling up and having every single light turned on. Having alarms set in every window in the house. And sometimes there three out of seven alarms would be going off. It was always in the basement. Having to have our house, we had to call the cops one night and they came with search dogs. Because my both my oldest and my youngest daughter heard someone walking across our basement. It was like a old linoleum. So it was, you could hear anyone walking across that floor, even when we went to do laundry, you could hear. There's a lot of things that happened prior to moving to that house. My car, it was the drive shaft had come apart when I was on the highway. My gas tank, I was on my way to go see a friend. And The traffic was really bad, and so I thought, well, I'll just go all the way down Broadway. And we were driving down Broadway, and I could hear this scraping on the ground. And I pulled into a 7-Eleven, and I asked the kid working, can you come and tell me what this is, what's hanging from my car? And he looked under, and he said, ma'am, that's your gas tank. And so I made it home and called the detectives and said, hey, my gas tank came detached from my car, from my SUV. So they did fix it. They said, the detective told me in the end that gas tanks come detached from cars all the time. 
And I have talked to, I had five friends who were mechanics at the time that said that never happened. That never happens. But it was, it had become loose. And again, I was crazy. Uh, You know, I had issues. I was imagining things. And during those times when I was drinking, there were two police that were called to the house because I was being belligerent. I was drunk. And when all this started happening with our abuser, they were the ones who answered the calls. And they recognized that I was not drinking any longer. They recognized I was a single mom. They recognized the abuse. And they were very few people involved at that point in time where they did not say oh she's mental she's you know we had even gone to the Denver County I think it was Denver Municipal and they held me there for an entire day because they were trying to get me admitted into the psych unit because of all the things that had been reported in regards to our home and my car and they were saying that I was imagining things So there were a few people who didn't look at me and judge me and who didn't look at me and say, oh, she's crazy. You know, chick is crazy. And it was my attorney who has passed on now that, you know, the last time they tried to remove my kids, they were going to place them back in the care of their abusive dad because they wanted to give him a chance. And the caseworker who had been assigned to the case came to my home and I was doing laundry that day. So I had stacks of laundry, not everywhere, just like on the edge of the couch. And we didn't own a vacuum. I used a broom and she was telling me that that was against the rules. I couldn't live like that. That was filthy. Um, She kept looking around saying your house is filthy. It's, you know, and it wasn't. We made sure that everything was always tidy. Everything was always picked up. I mean, even with two little ones, our house didn't look lived in. And so she began to question me and ask me, you know, about the kids and what I had been doing. And then she began asking about the removal hearing that they were having. And she was asking me questions about that. And then she finally asked me, do you know why we're doing this? And I said, no, I actually, I don't understand it. And she said, oh, it's because you're mental. And she repeated herself several times, telling me, letting me know that I was mental. I understood. I began to understand what she was doing when she was trying to break me down. And she started telling me how I would pack favorite toys, how I would pack this, how I, she did it in detail. And again, I understood what she was doing. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I told her she had to leave. I told her, you need to leave. And you cannot, you will not be allowed back into my home unless there are attorneys present. And she left And I went out on the porch that afternoon and I wailed. You know, people were coming out of their houses to see what was going on. And I was devastated that they were going to try to put my kids back in the care of someone who was abusing them. And of someone who the kids admitted to the therapist that he was abusing them. 
And, you know, it was okay if they thought that I had, you know, that I was mental. Like I knew that there was things going on that I was trying to address myself. I was trying to understand what was going on. And so I walked into court that day and my oldest, who is now 26, she was my voice at the time. She is the one who spoke to the cops and the attorneys and my attorney and verified the stuff that was going on in our homes and to our cars and to me. And it just seemed like it was a dream because I remember walking in and we sat down and they removed the caseworker off the case. And she asked everyone. She asked every attorney involved. And she came back and she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, Mom, she's off the case. There's no one is going to hurt you anymore. She's gone. And she really, she had to really talk to me at that point because I wasn't understanding. I wasn't comprehending a whole lot. She was my angel during those times that she spoke up for me and she helped me to understand things. And she was always at my side. You know, it was my attorney, though, ultimately, who, you know, when things weren't going our way in court, she would ask me, she would lean over and say, are you okay to speak for your kids? Are you okay to tell the judge what your kids need? And she would allow me to talk to the judge and say, this is what's going on. This is what they need. And, you know, a lot of times the judge listened. Some of the times she wouldn't listen. But it was her who encouraged me to speak up for my children because I knew she knew I knew what my children needed. And she also knew that their needs were not being addressed. And she thought it was the best way for someone to listen, to get help for all of my kids. And so... They shut their doors on my family and I once again. And one of the attorneys on the case, when I'm asked to go in or I have to go in to speak to the judge when the dad, when the abuser violates the restraining orders, because he violated many times when that case was open. He's violated many times after the case has been closed. And I go in and I make sure that they hear me. And at this point in time, my son continued down that journey of drugs and alcohol, getting involved in gangs. And he is now sitting in prison and he will be for the next several years. And it's hard. It's devastating. The day after the march, I found out that where he is being housed, that they lock the prisoners down for six months out of the year. And as a mother and knowing and understanding what has happened in his life and knowing that he needs to be given hope, all people need to be given hope. And to know that they are taking that away from him, it's devastating. When my daughter told me that, I sat and cried for about a half an hour. And I wonder how, what will happen when he gets out how his life will be different. If you give no hope to someone, then that's how it's going to be for them. And I do what I can for him, but I can't heal him. He's got to be given the tools. And when you're locked down, 
for six months out of the year having no contact, having nothing, being given nothing. That's devastating. What does it mean, locked down in this case? We were just talking about some of this for juveniles. They are locked in their cells 24 hours a day, I think, with being allowed to get out for one hour. So there, it's almost like solitary confinement at this. He is 23. So for the last, I know it was around Christmas time. They let them get out. They promised them a Christmas dinner. And then they locked them down on Christmas Eve and they haven't been out. So that's hard. It's hard knowing the history and watching him go through, you know, knowing that I can't do anything other than being there and letting him know that we are there as his family and having him come back and see him for those brief moments where he's clear and he's not on drugs. I got to see him before he went to prison. That was healing for me, but it also opened my eyes to how much damage has been done. And knowing that I can't, our children are not thrown away. They're not tossed away. We can't do that to them. Understanding that with our story, having the courts shut the doors on us is it's more traumatizing for me as a mother than the actual, than the abuse. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's interesting because some of the conversations that I've had personally and on this show, you know, you talk about people who make choices. We did a conversation about a young boy who had made a really bad choice and held somebody up with a BB gun or something like that, you know, or people who use drugs or alcohol and I think especially in this society, or maybe it's humanity, you know, we want to label people. The world is so complicated that it's easier to just go, oh, you did this, you're this type of person. But there's so much growth and change and gray zone for all of our humanity. And every single one of us makes mistakes. Every single one of us is a human. We all have these same emotions of needing to feel seen and heard and respected and have hope for our capacity. And so your story has really, for me... You know, because it has opened this sense of like, it's not really black and white. And for those of us who want to quickly move on and be hard about it, it doesn't give a chance to dig out the nuance and offer the support. And I think I'm guilty of it, too. I think all of us have done that where you judge people. Right. But the devastating impacts that can have. What I talked about, it was a couple years ago that my attorney on that case reconnected with me because she saw the work that I was doing in Denver with all the protesting and the rallies that I had been doing. That She reached out and said, would you fly to Washington, D.C. and do a presentation, co-present with me and my team and tell your story and talk about it? And so I did. I talked to the American Bar Association. And the one thing that I pointed out to them was that last case that we had I walked into that courtroom and I already had multiple judgments placed against me. I was an alcoholic. I was a meth addict. I was a victim at that point. I had brown skin. The one thing that makes a lot of people uncomfortable is that I will speak for my children. I will speak for myself because I know what we need. And I told them, drop the judgments. Because there are things that happen in our lives that a lot of us, we don't have a whole lot of control over. 
or you look at me, you know, you see that I'm a meth addict and that's a pretty bad addiction. And you think, oh, she's not worth the time or the effort because, you know, she did drugs. She's an alcoholic. She's one of those dirty Indians that, you know, she's just a drunk. And the reality is, is I'm not those. The reality is, is that those were things that were introduced to the indigenous people to subdue them, to get them to sign treaties, to, I talked about this on Saturday, where alcohol was introduced to our people and it was when they began forcing our ancestors onto the reservations was when they stripped the men of their pride and their dignity of their roles as protector and provider. And the men started drinking. And then the missionaries came in and started removing the children from the mothers, from our aunties, our mothers, our grandmas. And the women started drinking. So there's this judgment placed on Native people that we're just a bunch of dirty drunks. And that's all. But that was given to us. That was shown to us, not from with our own nations, but from the colonizers. It was to control us. And fortunately, that's, you know, our people still suffer from those traumas, as well as the intergenerational traumas that have been passed down. And, you know, I explain this, that, you know, we're so quick to judge as a society. And like you said, Sarah, that you do it, I do it too. I see white people coming in and I'm like, oh, (laughs) here we go again. Because I, my history with white people is not great. It is, you know... I've had a lot of vicious things happen. <laughs> and so, you know, when I see people, white people coming towards me, I'm like, oh, God, help me. And But I also know that I have a lot of beautiful white people in my life who have helped me, who have stood by me, who have stood up for me. And that's part of my healing is to understand that not all white people are bad, you know, just like not all natives are drunks, you know, we all sin differently, you know, but it's, it's how we place judgment upon each other. And that was my message to the ABA was when you see a parent coming in, don't look at them in a different lens, understand that they are a human being that there are traumas that happen to all of us. Every single one of us in this room has suffered trauma, and we carry historical trauma in our DNA. Remember that, because that's helped me remembering and understanding that, that we all carry, we all, every single one of us, we carry trauma. And how we have handled that, you know, I've chosen to address my trauma. And it can be really ugly at times and it can be extremely painful. But I would rather address my trauma than to continue with the behaviors, the drinking and the drugging and going into unhealthy behaviors. I would rather be living the life that I do right now than to be back at where I was at one point in my life. 
That's so powerful. I love that you went to speak to the ABA, by the way. Love it. Love every part of that. I think that is such an important message and something that any advocate or anyone who's speaking on behalf of anyone, even if it's themselves, should be thinking about too, is how we judge and when we judge and why do we judge and to remove those for a second, as hard as that may be, and see the humanity in the person that's standing in front of you or asking you for help. I think we're out of time. I know. (laughs) Is there anything else before we go that you want to ask or you want to share? The one thing that I forgot that you and I had talked about when we initially talked a couple weeks ago was that, you know, I share my story because our abuser does not own me. He no longer has control over what I do, who I am, and where I am going. I've had to work really hard to understand. You know, I've had so many people saying, oh, you know, what you are doing by sharing your story is dangerous. That's bad. It's, he doesn't own me. And that's what you want people to understand. Like, you can't intimidate someone else when you understand you know, that there's lies and hatred and jealousy and greed behind their words, as opposed to your truth. I've got to pull that out as a quote. You can't intimidate me if you don't have the truth. I'm like, wow, that is amazing. I know. (laughs) Thank you for the wisdom. I appreciate that. And the perspective that is beautiful. Well, thanks again for coming on today and sharing more of your story and your perspective. I I feel called to sit in a moment of silence right now and really take in all that you have shared and process what that means and how I may have shown up doing that or how it might apply to my life and that last truth bomb you just dropped too. Like (laughs) all of these thoughts that you had and your story is very different than mine and yet relatable and we're humans and that's probably why. Right. You know, and so thank you again for really coming on and talking about stuff that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I appreciate you. Thank you very, very much. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 